It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello. Welcome back to the latest Love Tennis podcast. I'm remembering to talk again at the start, which is always a bit of a miracle. Hopefully, Calvin and James will be with me very soon. Um, it's been a really, really long week. I'm quite exhausted, to be honest. Um, basically, had no activity since February, work-wise. Um, and now, finally, just had a very, very full-on week, uh, which we will be talking about. Here's James. Hello, James. Hello. I beat Calvin on for once. That never happens. Yeah. He's usually much slower on the draw. He says there's Bluetooth playing up. All right. All right. Um, I was just saying I've had a very long week, James. After about six months of inactivity, I'm absolutely exhausted after last week. Yeah. First time in a long time. I mean, it's, it's almost that thing now, isn't it? it? You're so grateful to be busy that it feels bad to be uh, complaining about anything. But yeah, I know what you mean. It's one of those things, reporting on live sport. We're obviously really lucky to do it, but it is quite hard. <laughs> and like, if you don't do it for a long time, it, it is quite challenging. Um, and you sort of, you feel like such a, I, I always feel when I've not done live for a while, you feel like such a rookie. Yeah. You walk in and like things happen and you're not in the zone. And it's, it's yeah. awful. I, I think the, it, it's really funny how my mindset's changed watching tennis from when I started this job to, to now. Uh, in the yeah. sense that every time a match, like this week, the first set, the night matches I'm talking about mainly, as soon as one player wins that first set, I just want them to win the second one so I can be done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And pretty much every night match of relevance this week was a long three-setter. You, know, yeah. you had Rafa serving for it in that semi-final, lost it, dragged into another one, team again, upper set, loses it. So and there been... was plenty of shenanigans as well. Like, you know, there was lots of double shenanigans and like, yeah. all sorts. I, like, I was hearing about the thing with Marcel Grenoyers, who almost pulled out the match two minutes before it started. And then it just seemed to get worse and worse over the week. But, um, yeah, it's it's amazing when you don't have to have 10,000, 16,000 people in the arena to make things not run that smoothly. Um, 
Calvin seems to be still struggling with Bluetooth, so I'm tempted. Uh, there he is. Oh, no, he's, he's taking his headphones off. My headphones, though, so can you hear me? We yes. can. Right, just crack on. I can still hear you, but I'm trying to sort this technical issue out. Right. <laughs> well, uh, as George mentioned there, uh, we are now at the end of the men's uh, tennis season. We're going to do a bit of a season review next week um a few end of season awards and that sort of thing but we thought we'd let all that information percolate and really talk about the tennis um from the week that's just gone past because i think you described it last week george the champions league of tennis uh, and it's what it should have been um we can maybe argue about exactly how high the uh, the quality was but daniel medvedev um took the title he's a sixth different winner of the ATP Tour Finals in the last six years, I think I'm right in saying. You Novak, are. Murray, Dimitrov, Tsipas, yeah. Zverev. No. Wrong, Zverev, wrong way round, but yeah. yeah. And then uh, Medvedev, um, which is what we'd like to see. As I wrote in something I wrote for the, the iPaper tomorrow, um, this would suggest that tennis has moved past the big three era. We're in the sort of halcyon days of unpredictability that the women's tour enjoys at the moment but uh, funnily enough it hasn't really been like that um nevertheless this is probably the most of all those four we'll come on to to what exactly winning the atp tour finals means or doesn't mean i think george but of the four winners that are not murray and Djokovic, was this the most impressive because of who he beat and how he beat them yeah i mean i think in terms of Obviously, he's the first man in the ATP Finals history to beat the top three ranked players. So mm. that that by itself, I think, makes it the most impressive. Um, yeah, I thought I thought Medvedev was excellent all week. He obviously didn't lose a match, which is particularly impressive when you consider he had that dead rubber on Friday as well. Like I always think that's the hardest match of the tournament in many ways. Like I know team um, he lost in the he lost in his dead rubber. And I'm not sure, saying that has any sort of impact, but in previous years, some peak times people have won the first two matches, taken their foot off the gas in the third one, and then struggled to get back on it the next day. Well, you, it's a you, unique situation, isn't it? When you lose a tennis yeah. match, you don't usually have to play another one the next day. It's the sort of benefit of losing. <laughs> so yeah. You get to just go home. So yeah. I imagine it's quite hard to change, change up and down the gears like that. Um, uh, that, that dead rubber, I mean, I don't want to focus on it too much because it is ultimately pretty irrelevant. But, I mean, he he sort of went out to play the shortest match he could, whatever happened, as far as I can tell. He went for every ball, whacked everything as hard and as flat as he could. And if he lost two and two, so be it. But if he won, he was going to win in short, you know, short time, wasn't he? Yeah. Uh, was that team you were referring to or Medvedev? No, Medvedev, sorry. Medvedev, yeah, yeah, exactly. I think... The team was a similar strategy, really, in terms of um, I'm going to just try and finish this really quickly, whack it. Um, I think that's the only way to play that sort of match, isn't it, really? You know, you may as well try out a few new things that you might not do in a normal match situation, but ultimately you don't want to be knackered for the semifinals. Um, mm. And b- both of them, actually, who had the dead rubbers came through, didn't they, in their semifinals? Yeah. So. And both through quite quite lengthy semi-finals. Um, Calvin is, is online, but struggling with headphones, but we're, we're going to try anyway, because I think it will be fine. And we were just talking about that, that dead rubber and the difficulty of potentially losing a tennis match and then playing another one. I mean, it is pretty unique, isn't it? You, you don't get the chance to play after you lose. That change of gear must be difficult. 
Yeah, it's very strange. Just the same as it's it's quite strange to play when you know you're already through as well. Even though you're sort of hoping to win everything and um, you want to finish top of the group, it, it's still a sort of it's a different kind of vibe um, that there is sort of always one or two percent missing. I think when mm. that happens, um, and like you say, when once you've come back and you've sort of had had a little bit of, bit of a drop, it can be difficult. Mm. Um, the groups, I mean, by the by, the seedings went the way they were supposed to go. Um, in that, one, two, three, and four got out of them, albeit not necessarily um, all, all the right notes, not necessarily in the right order. Um, that's that's an extremely old reference uh, that really only about eight people listening to this podcast will probably get. <laughs> um, did, did anyone turn up any surprises in the group stages for you, Calvin? I mean, uh, I was. Li- Little underwhelmed, maybe by Stefano Tsitsipas, but he probably did have the tougher group. Yeah, um, same, you know. But Tsitsipas's whole year has just been bizarre, hasn't it? You just don't know what you're going to get from him um, mm. week in, week out. And yeah, he was the, he was the disappointment. I think I sort of thought he had a half a chance of retaining it. Um, other than that, I don't think there was any real. No real shock, I guess. Nadal did a bit better than what we thought. Both me and George thought he'd struggle to get through his group. Um, last week, um, so strangely, I suppose that was the uh, the biggest <laughs> surprise. Rafa Nadal actually getting out of the group stage. Yeah. Um, yeah. You mentioned Tsitsipas failing to defend, and it's kind of been a a running theme of the ATP Finals that winning it has meant not very little because at the time it means a lot financially, to say the least. But it hasn't meant anything for the kick on that we wanted it to be. Um, George, is this the the one that bucks the trend? <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I think it's, it's quite funny. In the press room, the, the other guys were all saying they've written the same piece for the last four years, pretty much. Yeah. About you know, is this the moment the guard changes? I think I'm right in saying like Dimitrov, he was world number three when he won it, and outside the top forty by the next the next year. Um, I can't remember him winning a match in the next twelve months. It was awful. <laughs> So, yeah, it certainly doesn't mean anything. I, I, I was asked this on the radio earlier, and I, I think my answer hasn't really changed in those five hours or whatever. Um, I think it's more... Medvedev's proven for a while now. He He's kind of mixing it up. He'd already been to that slam final. It, it didn't necessarily feel like this was such a massive step for him to take compared to the other ones. Um, mm. I, 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 so I, I don't necessarily... I just see this as a kind of a further little stepping stone for him rather than like, okay, this is the breakthrough title. Now the pressure's on next year. I think he's building up anyway. I'd still make him one of the favourites in Australia, one of the favourites at the US Open. He's one of the best hardcore players out there. Um, And that's not really changed based on this tournament. Mm. And it's worth pointing out as well that, yeah, I think, as you say, he, he has been a Grand Slam finalist, which I think none of the other three had been. Zverev obviously has been to the US Open final since, but those three, yeah, you're right, it had been the peak. And, and I suppose Medvedev's celebration kind of reflected that. I know there were no fans in there, but he was never going to be ripping his shirt off and uh, you know throwing it into the crowd. But he, he said afterwards something quite, I mean, look, Daniil Medvedev's an odd bloke. I, I'm willing to say that, and I think he would probably agree with me. But he said, maybe this is going to be my thing now. I know there are some footballers who do it, but I'm going to be the first tennis player who doesn't celebrate. Um, I kind of felt... it. it look, I, I know he's odd, so maybe this is just him being him and a bit quirky, but it felt a bit disingenuous. 
It felt a bit like he was trying to be weird for the sake of being weird. And if there's one thing that tennis fans don't like, it's players trying to project themselves, you know, as something that they're not. Um, Novak Djokovic's charm offensive, I would sort of reference for uh, maybe evidence. I don't know what you thought of it, George. It struck me as very odd. Yeah, I mean, he's kind of, he's kind of been doing this for a little while, this kind of no-celebrating thing. So I, did, I didn't really think it was uh, much of a much of a surprise to see him not do it for the title. I, I, I suppose it shows pretty good restraint, doesn't it? Not to run around like a lunatic, but he's, um, yeah, he's an interesting bloke. I mean, I, I find him quite fascinating both as a player and as a person. He's, he always answers very well in press conferences, but not to the sense he's like being a politician about it. You know, there are some players yeah. that answer, Novak does this and Roger to a degree can do this where they, it feels like they're giving long answers for the sake of trying to keep the number of questions in a press conference short rather than, you know, <laughs> they're giving long answers because they're interested in it. Whereas I think Medvedev kind of takes every question and he likes talking and he, he's an interesting person. And I guess that comes with not having journalists at all your press conferences all the time. I think it was the French Open maybe in 2018 or 19 when I was one of like two people actually inside a press conference with Medford or something. Um, (laughs) And at at Queens, you know, a couple of years ago, it was me and one other or whatever. And I, so I've already always known he's quite an engaging guy. And I think it's good for him to kind of get this stage because he's a really weird, quirky character, but I think he's good for the game. Um, I was going to ask you, Soleil Calvin, um, he, he, I think I saw Russell Fuller perhaps refer to Medvedev as a great problem solver in tennis matches. Um, can you maybe break down what that means? And, and with someone like him, does he, does he have a lot of tactical versatility? Is that basically what it means? Um, yeah, that's what they'll mean. But I think it's, it's more... It's a strange one because his strategy pretty much stays the same all the time, Medvedev. So... I, in one degree, I'm not sure he is a great problem solver because he pretty much just the, his, his tactics remain the same most of the time. But he and he's throw, a grinder, really. That's kind of what we regard him as. Yeah, right? he makes a lot of balls. He makes a lot of balls to length. That's what he does. But he also does things. Like, I go into a bit of a discussion earlier with a couple of people, because a few people yesterday. It's kind of now become a bit of a thing with Medvedev. I think though, the flip side of this is that every match he wins, it, there's this talk that he, he's a he's a great chess player, and his tactical adaptability has been the sort of deciding factor. But yesterday, I'm not sure that was the case. Yesterday, he he served at 52% first serves in the first set and lost his serve once, and then thereafter he served at 66% I think it was first serves and he didn't get broken so I'm not sure it was great tactical adaptability more that he served a bit better and then somebody said well if he doesn't serve volley on that point at break point down in the second set team wins the match but team had a pretty easy pass to pass him on that ball I'm not sure that was Medvedev's fantastic sort of tactical adaptability the tactic didn't really work team sort of miss the opportunity and if he doesn't improve his serve then he can be as tactically adaptable as he wants if he serves at 52 percent team would have beat him yesterday i think i think the, the the funny thing about that match is i think medvedev was better the entire way through apart from yeah. one game in the first set when medvedev was 40 love up and had some sort of existential crisis dropped the easiest smash you could ever hope for at 40 30 having missed a couple of simple ones 
and he lost five points in a row. So even like his serving stats that set, he he was so comfortable on serve pretty much every other game, other than that like two minute meltdown where he just lost five points. But I thought he was the better player throughout. And what I was going to say, kind of on the point of him being tactically really good, I think the thing about Medvedev where he is a great problem solver is actually like shot by shot. And I think you'd see like the power team can rip it kind of down the line. It's his ability to kind of get out so awkwardly and then almost think in that yeah. moment, right, where's the most awkward place I can put it back? And sometimes that's like really short, weird, slight angles. So I, I kind of agree with what you're saying in terms of I don't necessarily think, as you're saying, his match plan changes too much, but it's that ability to sort of think in the moment which almost I think, to kind of amazing reactions. Yeah, I think also, I think there's a bit of confirmation bias as well. I said last week that Gus, he's, a, he's an intelligent person. Obviously, he's got, he's very sort of, he's got a mathematical brain. He's very good at chess. I think people want to sort of suggest that that means he's, he's so intelligent on the court. He's more intelligent than everyone else. But if you watch the match against Nadal, although he beat Nadal, it was actually Nadal who, who had the sort of interesting tactics in that match. He was sort of, he was using the slice, he was trying to slow it down, and then he got big on one. And that almost did for what he should have done for Medvedev, that one. And Medvedev didn't really change much in that match. I'm not having that just sort of, second serve, serve volley on break point down. That to me seems more like a last roll of the dice <laughs> rather than, and it's same when he played Djokovic Cincinnati last year, just hitting two first serves. It's more of a last roll of the dice than some sort of, plat- it's, you know, I would say that Murray is, Murray is a problem solver. He's the best around at doing it. He, he sort of, he figures out what his opponents want him to do least and does that. Whereas Medvedev, yeah, he just has his game plan and I, I, I don't think he's any, he's any more tactically adaptable than any of the other top five players in the world. I guess the the thing with him is, and kind of what we've been crying out for from anyone in this kind of, you know, second tier, is that he has enough of all the elements to kind of take on all three of them. You would think he he's got the grit yeah. to kind of match Nadal. He's got the power to take on Federer or Djokovic to a certain extent, and he's you know tactically awkward enough that he can make life difficult for for Djokovic as well. He's a strange one, really, because I think. Like George said, bar that one game yesterday, so I'm going to make some exceptions here, then prove everything I'm saying wrong. Um, <laughs> he, apart from that one game yesterday, and apart from last year against Nadal, where it all went beats on for him, he, you know he's not going to do anything stupid. Like you know that the guys are going to have to beat him. He's not going to blow a situation himself. Whereas there's still that tendency from team that he can just have one game of idiocy. And it all goes. And I was going to say, I think that's something Medvedev's really worked on in his game. I know there was a lot made about him working with that sports psychologist, but that, that wasn't always the case. I mean, there was that famous incident at Wimbledon where he had such a meltdown and started lobbing coins at the umpire's chair at the end of it. And there were a few other incidents like that where his head just totally, totally went. And it was that, that US Open last year where I think that changed quite a lot, where he, you know, decided to kind of enjoy the crowd, enjoy the anger, enjoy the the fans kind of hating him in that moment and use it to his advantage. It just seemed a lot better at dealing with those sorts of situations. I know he's not really had to deal with that, but just mentally there, it seems he's had a big change of attitude and now he's quite a fun guy on court on the whole. It's quite rare to see him. There was one at the US Open this year, actually, that I can think of against team where he lost his head a bit, but 
on the whole, these days is a much cooler customer than he used to be because it used to be a, a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. Well, let's not forget that he did flip off the entirety of Arthur Ashe Stadium. Like, that was that's pretty spectacular to stick the finger up. Like, oh, I'm just scratching the side of my head with my middle finger. What a coincidence. But, but, I, but again, I think it's a different way of doing it. His meltdowns before meant the match was over, he was seeing red, and he was going to do something really stupid. That one in New York was like, right, screw you guys, but I'm going to win this just to spite you. And that's like a, that's what I mean about the kind of change in attitude. And I, I, it speaks a lot to him as a person that he's been able to do that because it, it's mm-hmm. difficult to get rid of that meltdown sort of explode everything kind of tendency. I think there's something like there, I come across because I work across a couple of different sports. There are a few Russians that we kind of come across and have got to know a bit. And I think there is something in a certain type of Russian sportsman which absolutely relishes being hated, you know, because Russia is not the most popular country in the world. And they have this kind of Trumpian, Putinesque um, kind of victim complex that really, really feeds them. And, you know, rightly or wrongly, frankly, but a lot of people in the world don't like Russia at the moment. I don't like Daniil Medvedev or Daniil Kvyat or whoever it happens to be just because they're Russian. And I think they absolutely love it because otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't get anywhere. Um, and frankly, you've got to be rich enough and entitled enough to be able to let that bounce off you, but that's neither here nor there. So, look, it's good to have, I think, as I said before, a new face who's going to, as you say, George, be fun on court, fun off court. Um, and really engage with people um, on every level. His social media is still a bit tedious, but he is managed by IMG, so I think that's a little bit inevitable because they know what they're doing when it comes to marketing. Um, I wanted to, to move over to the other side of the net and talk about Dominic Team a little bit because, George, you, you kind of noted in our running order, which is George's sole responsibility for the week. Um, <laughs> yeah, outside my actual job. I outside outside job. Yeah. Um, that he he's now got this this losing record in in major finals. Um, is it a real concern? I mean, jump in whoever whoever feels they're most concerned about Dominic Team. Well, um, you go first. I think, oh, yeah, no. um, it, it's a bit of a concern for me um, for him because the one he's won, he kind of shouldn't won, won, shouldn't have won that either. Um, mm. I think Zverev he did serve for it, didn't he? He served for the match in the fifth. Uh, and he started terribly. Uh, teams start terribly in that match. Um, and you kind of knew what was coming from Zverev, admittedly. But I still think, it, you know, but then it's not like he completely goes to pieces. He was very close to beating Djokovic at the start of the year in the Australian as well. He still, mm. I don't necessarily think it's a nerves issue for him. Uh, for me, he makes too many sort of silly errors at what seem like inconsequential moments in the match that aren't sort of in sets at sort of two all, love 15, he'll throw in like a sort of rally ball in the net or something like that. And they're the sort of errors that that Djokovic, Nadal, Murray, Federer, they don't make. Um, and mm. that, that's, that's where I think he's he's still got a bit of work to do. I th- I was going to say like um, this, this was actually put to me on Twitter before the final, this sort of thing about his records and whether I was concerned or not. Um, and it, it was kind of framed as slams, masters and ATP finals. And I, I did kind of say back to them, I don't think there's been any gimmies for team no. in any of those finals. You'd say the Zverev US Open final was probably the biggest gimme given the way Zverev's forms dropped. But 
when Zverev beat him in Madrid, Zverev was playing really hot then back in 2018, I think it was. You know, he's lost to Rafa twice at the French Open. There's, you know, no shame in that. He's lost to Djokovic in five sets in the Australian Open. He lost to Sissipas in the deciding set tiebreak last year. Sissipas was playing really well. You know, that was a coin flip. Um, and again, he's lost to Medvedev, who's beaten the other two top three players in the world in the same week. So it, there's none of these matches I've thought, right, team's got a serious, serious mental issue. But it, but it is certainly something that I really fancy him in quarterfinals and semifinals against anyone now. And you put him in that situation. But in a final, I do have a nagging feeling. Sometimes maybe he's just like spent himself a little bit throughout the tournament. But I, I would... I, I picked Medvedev in three to win this one. And it's also worth saying I won the prediction of last week despite going third. Thank, I can't believe that wasn't my opening gambit. Um, but, you know, he, he is someone who will need to improve that. And I, I do think he will as well because his record against the top guys now is getting pretty good. It's also, I think as well, is that there's not been any, in any of these finals, there's, like George says, the opponents have been elite level opponents the matches have been close and it's not any of them where you could say he really bottled it in that match or that that was one where he definitely had that match. He should have won that match that, that I don't think there'd been any like yesterday. Yeah, sure. He could, he could have broke Medvedev in the second set, but you know, that's something that happens um, even against Djokovic at the start of the year. I think, was he behind all of the fifth George or he definitely didn't, he, yeah, he I mean, he, he was up in sets, two. wasn't he? But he yeah. was never like that close, I don't think. Yeah, well, he wasn't twice. within a point or two of winning the match. Um, so, yeah, it's a strange one. I think it's more a concentration thing for him still than a actual a nerves stroke choking issue. I think it's interesting as well. I, I was kind of, you know, as someone who wants someone like Dominic Team to do well, I was encouraged by... I think you called the second set tiebreak in the semi-final against Djokovic, George, um, KG. Like, Djokovic has kind of made his name as one of the best tiebreak players around, I think. And he seems to have a knack of, of you know, finding ways through. And team almost, and I think actually has spoken about it before. Um, I can't find the quotes, but um, about basically copying Djokovic in those tactical moments. And, you know, OK, he lost that second set tiebreak, but there were 22 points involved and he did win the decisive one in the end. Yeah, I think the exact quote is something like he studied Novak and how he was playing tiebreaks and what Novak was doing was like make himself super solid and not lose it. And it's yeah. interesting because that second set tiebreak was pretty much exactly like that. OK, team double faulted on set point or whatever, uh, on match point, sorry, in the in the second set. But both of them were pretty just like, I'm not going to be the one that makes the error here. Um, and it made it just like quite a, a tough watch in many ways. It was like, it, <laughs> it was really exciting, but it was also just so, so kind of jangling of nerves. I think there was one shot from Novak, to be fair, where he saved a match point with a forehand kind of where he's out on the backhand side and ripped it up the line. That, that was like pure class in that moment to do that. Mm. But on the whole, every match point was the other one making a mistake or whatever. Um, it was kind of rough viewing in many ways. And, and we should talk about what, what Calvin, I think you described as maybe the best shot you'd seen all year, possibly ever. <laughs> um, yeah, shot, yeah. The, shot of the year. An unbelievable <laughs> a, shot. A backhand exchange between team and Djokovic, which just ended. Yeah, the thing is, and this doesn't get spoke about enough really in tennis, that I think the, the hardest shot to hit and the shot that you see the least 
in tennis is a backhand cross-court winner. And I say that from a sort of neutral position. You see players that on a forehand, they can unleash... You can unleash down the line. You can unleash a backhand down the line from a sort of neutral position. Team does it a lot. <clears throat> you even get players who can just whip a forehand cross-court because it's a naturally more powerful shot. But you, you in, a, in a whole year, you probably see three or four backhand cross-court winners from neutral positions uh, where both players are neutral. And and if they are like that, they tend to cross the sideline before the baseline. They tend to be sort of angled to drag them out. Whereas the one that team hit five four, it was through the baseline. He was behind the baseline. Djokovic was behind the baseline. And Djokovic, if he'd have known exactly where that shot was going to go, he would have stood in the exact same position. And the ball flew past him before he got his racket back. It was a phenomenal ball strike. Up there with the best ball strikes I've ever seen. Yeah, I was just going to say kind of on team generally. I mean, I don't want it to kind of feel like we're being really negative about this guy either because like he's had another... I think really, it's because we really want him strong... to do well because he's clearly yeah, really good. Exactly. But like when you look at his season, he, he's got the second most points this season. So he's behind Djokovic in terms of points that haven't just been retained from last year. He's mm. now like 225. You know, he's like, he's not far off Rafa in the rankings anyway. Um and, and there's not been a a player second in the rankings since 2005 who's not Murray, Djokovic, Federer and Nadal. Do you know who the other one is? I can't remember if I wrote this in the notes earlier. Uh, no, you didn't. Uh, so what are you saying? He, the, the last one to be number two. Yeah, so I... Rafa overtook someone in 2005. And since then, no one who's not in the big four has been world number two. There's been 18 oh. world number threes, but no one's gone past is them. David Nalbandian? Now it's not. I don't think he ever got to number two. I might be wrong. I feel like he yeah, was that's what three I was wondering. or four. Calvin, number, world number two in 2005? Who was it in 2005? Is that the question? Yeah. Yeah, uh, the last number two wasn't the big four. That's the question. Roddick? It was not Roddick. Good guess. Who was it? Leighton Hewitt. Ah, really? Yeah, of course. Uh, Nalbandian, incidentally, never got to world number two. He got to world number three about eight months after that. So. Look at that. That's, that's knowledge, rather. Very yeah, well, sad yeah. knowledge that no one wants. <laughs> <laughs> it's never it's ever. strange that with, with, with you, because that's quite a bit after Hewitt's, what we'd sort of say, is his peak, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Was he number one 2002? Yeah, so, and he had that sort of 18 months where he was phenomenal, uh, or maybe 12 months, and then not much yeah. after that. There was a bit of a period, though, wasn't it, where you could just win a tournament and have a little role at number one, I suppose, yeah. for those next couple. <laughs> yeah. I think Ferrero was there for about four yeah, weeks Saf- or something. Staffin had, had a small run, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he got to the final in Australia in 2005, which will have been the, uh, the base of his number two Um Let's move on to, uh, well, well, we've simply written farewell to the O2 because kind of for, for London-based and English-based journalists, it's, a little bit of an end of an era. We're very lucky, or have been for the last few years. We've effectively had two majors in London, Wimbledon in the summer, and then um, the ATP World Tour Finals at the end of the year. Uh, they head off to Turin uh, in 2021. Um, George, you were obviously there, one of the 40-odd journalists, or however many who were on site. 40? Well, oh, there were, I think, I I think, think there were eight of us in total. What, of British ones? But presumably there were no non-British ones, I suppose. 
or did there some yeah. sneak peeks? So I'm not including broadcast journalists, but uh, okay. eight, eight, eight written media. Because you don't think they're proper journalists? Well, you're such a sneak well. They well, actually, they weren't. It's it's more that I I can't give you an exact figure because they were in the bubble with the players uh-huh. broadcast. So we 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 weren't, which was obviously a good thing. Um, yeah, yeah, because they were getting tested all the time and stuff, weren't they? So that's uh, that's not so good. Um, well, obviously it wasn't the same, and like it's not the way any of us would have wanted to say goodbye. But um, maybe reflect for us on on the whole London visit, as in the whole years that that ATP finals have been in London. I mean, it's been a success. I think that's pretty pretty hard to disagree with. Yeah, definitely. I think like. I would. I was kind of thinking. Obviously, it's like really sad the fans weren't there to see it off this year. Um, but the, the past few years, the quality hadn't been as good as it it had been to 2016. Uh, you know, 2017, 2018. They had their moments, but they, they certainly weren't in the group stages. Particularly, they weren't the level they had been. And I thought this year's quality was probably the joint best year I've had. Um, the first, my first ever tennis tournament full stop was the 2016 event, which obviously mm-hmm. was pretty memorable in itself when Murray finished the year as uh, year end number one. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's been a really good event. And I think when you consider the reputation tennis has, and t- more importantly, how tennis is put on in this country, generally in the grass court season, it's a complete opposite sort of event to that. So it, it's been good to kind of show it in a different light. And I, I don't know if you saw, but I, I've, I've basically taken some posters this week. I was, I was allowed to take them. I hasten to add. I, mean, it wasn't just, <laughs> I wouldn't have put it so brazenly on Twitter if I had just been robbing the O2 all week, but uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> I just put some posters on to, that I'm going to send around to some fans in the country. But I, the way I'm choosing who I'm sending it to is like I wanted them to share their best memories, and it has brought so many smiles to my faces. There are just things I totally forgot about until like this week. Um, like, do you remember when Merka Federer was just like shouting abuse at Vavrinka on the court, and then they <laughs> they and they had like a punch up in the locker room after? Like, I totally <laughs> forgot about that. Before this week. The best but, thing about that one was that. <laughs> That 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 was just absolute drama. And then Federer just binned off the final, didn't he? Mm. Didn't play it. You know, yeah. I, think, I could just imagine like Stan just you know finally calming down at about sort of five o'clock on Sunday afternoon, having both fallen out with his mate and lost <laughs> the match, having had match points. And then the sort of word gets to him that Federer just didn't bother with the final anyway. <laughs> so, um, but. Um, yeah, that was. A, I think it's. Been, I think it's a great event at the O2, though. I really enjoyed it. The times I've been, I think I've been three times. It's actually the only time I've ever seen Federer play live. Um, was at the O2, um, having been to Wimbledon and on either centre or number one about fifteen times and missed him every single time. <laughs> um, I saw him. At, um, I saw him there two years ago when he lost to Zverev, actually. Mm. Um, yeah, but. Yeah, I think it's a great event. Shame yeah, and it's always been a big ticket seller as well. You know, I mean, it's sometimes hard, I find, because of the way the arena is, it's actually quite hard to tell when it's not full. Um, it's quite clever in that way. That you, But generally, it has been. And, you know, they've been good at... I remember years when they've had school kids in on, on cheap tickets and stuff for, for afternoon sessions from, you know, East London. That's really important as well. Yeah, well, this, is, this is where the um, the main reason it's not 
moved anywhere for such a long time has been it's like where else in the world can you consistently sell tickets like this um guaranteed for 12 mm. years on the spin you know that there's not too many candidates for that and that and because it's become such a massive financial part of the atp like it i think it's 15 percent of their overall revenue or something like it's absolutely wow. massive um that that in their contract in italy that the government have had to guarantee like the payment regardless of fans and stuff so now it's on the italians to like get the money themselves by t- ticket sales but the, the money is a flat fee and the atp insisted on that um because they were so like reluctant to take it away from england because they were worried about selling it so i think that that in itself speaks like real volumes to h- how much of a success it's been yeah i mean you're you're right and and to be fair i think that is the more ordinary way if you like of putting on events like this to have a staging fee. You know, it's how, for example, Formula One do it with places that they don't want to go to. They say, right, well, fine, we'll come, but you just give us 50 million quid up front um, and and then we'll just, you know, you, you kind of divvy it up afterwards. But Calvin, sorry, I interrupted you. As, as well, sort of linked to that, I was told on very good authority as well that it is that if that one week accounts for 10% of the O2's annual income. Really? Um, so it's going to be sort of quite a big big loss for them which which makes sense really when you think about it in the there's nothing else there's two sessions a day they fill the the arena twice a day um and that includes everything that that sort of includes all the restaurants um and what have you as well so they're sort of getting a double hit of those people twice a day every day for a week yeah as you say i've been so this year james has been to the o2 before where the media are normally but we changed setting this year and were put in just one of the hospitality areas because Mm. obviously there's no one there um normally we're in a very gray room with you know hundreds of journalists but this year was like quite quite a nice setting um Mm. but we were talking to some of the staff there who normally run the hospitality stuff and i was kind of saying oh are there any other events like this that you know you have the day and the night stuff going on. And, and she said, oh, you kind of have conferences that come there for a bit that can like, take over the day, but that wouldn't be like a big event at night and stuff. There's nothing that's quite the same. And the, I, I think it's a real shame for the A2 to lose that revenue mm. as well. For them, perspective, it'll be hard to hard to replace. Because a lot of the events they put on are just like one night on a Saturday, aren't they, I suppose? Yeah. Um, but, but conversely, it, you know, tennis, is, we've already got a Grand Slam in London. Tennis is pretty popular in England. Um, they're heading to Turin to the Pala Alpitor. Um, I hope I'm pronouncing that wrong because that annoy people. Um, which was originally built for the 2006 Winter Olympics, and we also remember how successful that was. Um, and you know, we've talked before at length on this podcast that Italy is a country with masses of tennis. Um, I think they've got something like 10 players in the top 150 in the world. Possibly it's 13 players. I've just checked now. Um, you know, it's it's a country that probably needs or deserves, and given the good work they've done for growing the game, deserves that kind of that kind of um, accolade of having a tournament like that. Yeah, and I think if you look think about the O2 and how it's worked, you know, you pretty much had Murray qualifying for I think his first finals. Perhaps I can't remember if he went to Shanghai before, but it, it was certainly will have been one of the first ones he qualified for in two thousand nine, and the British fans got to see kind of his journey go through that finished with him in 2016 being world number one. And you had the big three, big four kind of in their pomp there. But now the, the stories about the next generation, and as we all have said, like we think Yannickson is probably the guy 
who's going to be the best of this next generation. I think that's fair to say. Um, mm. it, it, it could be, it's going to be a tough push for him to get there next year still. Um, but if he could somehow take that next step next year and qualify, that, that would be a great story in itself. And he, he's someone I expect to be there probably four of the five years. I think next year will come too soon, but it, it is, it is a good story for them to kind of bring on. Well, let's face it, the way their ranking system's going, Matteo Berrettini might hang on for next year. He's not won a match for about two years. He's still number 10 in the world. It's unbelievable. Um, (laughs) Somebody just keeps forgetting to take him out of the rankings. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's also because I just saw Andrea Seppi is still inside the top 100, but that's also kind of bad. Let's move on because there's a, a few other things we want to get through. Um, we want to talk a little bit about Novak Djokovic, um, beaten by Team and Medvedev uh, this week, of course, last week, I should say. Um, we've talked a bit about the changing of the guard or you know what kind of this says. Uh, I think what's really interesting is to what, what Andy Murray's actually been saying um, about Novak Djokovic over the last couple of days. He's been basically on Twitch with Gail Monfils for about three days, as far as I can tell. A whole so, week. Oh, well, I find it very funny because Gail Monfils dresses up and puts on a tie and a suit and Andy Murray's like leaning out of a hotel bed, like wearing about <laughs> sometimes a T-shirt and underwear. Um, not that you see a lot of his bottom half, but, you know, I'm just just painting a picture. Um, but this is this is kind of what he said that was really interesting. And, and George, you picked up on it. Um, I think that one of the things I've been through at times in my career where mentally I'm not totally there and totally focused, that one of the things that can go is your shot selection in important moments. The slightly wrong choices in the wrong moment, that's the thing Novak over his whole career, but especially in the last five or six years, he's been better than anyone else. Very rarely chooses the wrong option, the wrong shot. This week at the ATP Finals, and maybe through the French Open a bit for me as well, in the final of the French, it felt like he was trying to shorten the points a lot, and then the same this week. Um, Calvin, I know you've talked before about Novak almost trying to protect himself a little bit. Um, Is that what we're seeing in the last couple of months, or, or is this really a mental disintegration? I don't think it's a conscious thing. I think he, he's such a winner. I think he wants to win everything. Um, I think that's just something that happens to him in slams over best of five that sort of subconsciously gives him that little bit extra. And the other guys know they've got to beat him over five as well, which is mm. which is a tough one. But yeah, it, it's bound to get to the stage where sort of the intrinsic motivation just drops. Like, you know, especially like this week where there's no fans and that type of thing. It's a strange. It's a strange atmosphere. I, I, I don't read anything into him not winning in Paris and um, the O2 this year. He, he was pretty crap in the O2 last year as well. <laughs> yeah, I think it, it, the, the the question for me for Novak in general um, is when he's going to turn the taps on and off. And I think the thing I would say that has struck me a bit more in the second half of the year compared to the first was. And I know, obviously, the first was heavily interrupted by the pandemic. But I mean, before that US Open incident, you know, Novak had been kind of puffing his chest out saying, I'm not going to lose a match this year. And that felt quite a big motivation for him. And as soon as the first one went, I know he won Rome straight after, but he's never quite felt like he's had the same motivation. And what's been very clear from his conferences is the things he's motivated for are, you know, he wanted the year-end number one, which he got in Vienna before that Sonego match that we covered a, a couple of weeks ago, which was bizarre. But it's kind of becoming a bit of a pattern, I think. I don't think he's that bothered about... I mean, it's not that he's not bothered. I know he wants to win it, but it, 
it's not everything to him to do it. Now it's about the slam the... count. Yeah. It's about the slam count. It's about being the top one in terms of year end of all, sorry, weeks at number one, which he's basically got anyway. Yeah. Um, but my, my big question, and again, maybe one for Calvin, how easy is it to be turning that tap on and off? And when does, you know, I, I, sometimes you talk about like winners. I always think like Jose Mourinho is an example I use about this. Like he used to like talk about winning the league cup to breed that mentality for the rest of the season in many ways. Like the first chance to win a trophy to kind of come through. You know what I mean? Whereas other, some sort of like Wenger was never bothered about the league cup. But is it, how important is it to kind of breed that winning mentality at the lower levels? And when does it start impacting you when you're trying to turn up and just win slams, for example? I think it's quite unique for Djokovic because I don't think he'll ever... I'm not sure he can be a player like Federer who basically turns up and plays the four slams and then about another seven or eight tournaments throughout the year. He's not that type of player. So I think he'll have to always play a fair few matches. He's not going to be like team two years ago where he's playing every week of the year. But um, I also think that, you know, things change as you get older as well. Uh, and like I say, I think it's just the intrinsic motivation that he'll have um, and how soon we get fans back, full fans in stadiums. I think all those things will be a factor for him. I'd, he's, a, he's a natural winner. I, I keep saying it, that he's the best match player of any sport I've ever seen, probably of all time. If you take into account his record, his record against his biggest rivals and taking into account that those biggest rivals are also in the top five players of all time. Um, he's a phenomenal competitor. So in, in closing, I, I think he's a unique case. So it'd be, nothing would surprise me with where he goes from here. Maybe it just burns out. Maybe that's it. Um, there's a chance that that's the case. If say, let's say team or Medvedev win the Aussie open, and then you think Nadal's probably going to win the French. Hmm. Um, you know, it's it's not unfeasible that he doesn't overtake Federer like we thought he would. He'd be 34 it, next year, is he? 33. Yeah. Oh, is he 34 he, next year? Yeah, he turns 34 in May, June. I think June, actually. By the way, I've been stung with this prediction that Djokovic wouldn't win another slam before. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> to be clear, I'm not saying that Djokovic <laughs> won't win another slam. It, it's um, it's interesting, isn't it? I, I, what you're saying, Calvin, about things change as you get older, and you know, we did see. I'm trying to remember when it was when there were a lot of rumours flying around about Djokovic's personal life, and um, he kind of came out and I think said, "Oh, I'm." kind of rededicating myself to my family and there was definitely a switch I can't remember what it was George you might know this better than me but I seem to remember there was a long period of uncertainty and then he kind of addressed well, he addressed it and didn't address it but he basically said I'm really going to make an effort now you know with my family and I, I just wonder if you could track that graph against results and see whether that changed at all I don't know yeah I think I mean certainly look I I, I'm always going to be a bit, <laughs> a bit careful how I frame this, but the, you know, in that period between 2016, when he was on top of the world, he'd won all four Grand Slams, he held everything. The bloke looked like he was never going to lose again, and then the <laughs> drop off a cliff from there was absolutely astonishing. I know some people will say, "Oh, he still made the U.S. Open final," but I think, I'm pretty sure he had two buys in that match. Pretty, that <laughs> yeah, it was, it was bizarre. Run. It, was it was a bizarre run. Um, 
and, and then he dropped off a cliff. And when Calvin's talking about saying he'd never win another slam back then, you know, I had loads of people say that to me. They were all like, this guy's definitely finished. There's, there's no way back. Um, and it, it, it took him a long time to kind of rediscover that invincibility. Well, it was um, unprecedented in sport as well. That I'd, This was what I was basing it on, one of the things. And I, I did, I'll say again, I've like a broken record on this. I did caveat it with, with this coaching setup, he will never win another slam. And he <laughs> did go back to his old coach. But, <laughs> but, but so, so I was right. Let me point that out. <laughs> um, but in no other sport, and I follow sort of a lot of sports a fair bit, nobody has ever had, has ever been the best and then dropped way off for two years, which is what he did, and then came back to be, being utterly dominant again. It's just never happened, really. Mm. Uh, through a reason that wasn't, you could say Muhammad Ali, I guess, but he never dropped off. He just didn't compete. Yeah. Um, whereas Djokovic was the first one in any sport that's had that's had two years of bad form and then came back and did what he did. And, and it was bad. Like it was really oh, it was bad. terrible. Like it was it, terrible. He was losing. I remember that week. I know, and there was a little bit of surgery around here or whatever. But yeah, and we can debate till the cows come home how important that was or wasn't. Um, mm. But that there was that week, wasn't it, where he was lost to like he lost back to back in Indian Wells and Miami to like Taro Daniel and Benoit Pair, I think. And I mean that that's unbelievable for Djokovic yeah. to ever lose to Pair without Pair like playing amazingly. Do you know what I mean? Like Pair didn't do anything particularly special. Like this was a guy just so bereft of all confidence. I mean, it was really crazy to think a year earlier he held all four Grand Slam titles. Um, just on that uh, run to the 2016 US Open men's final, because as you, as you rightly remember, it was bizarre. For start, he only played players whose flag was in red, white or blue. Um, <laughs> which I, I just like flags, don't, don't hate. Um, but he also, his first three rounds, he only completed four sets of tennis because he had a walkover from Yuri Vesely and Mikhail Yuzhny retired after six games. Um, and he also had a retirement from Joe Wilfred Songa in the quarterfinal. So over his whole run to the final, um, he only completed, uh, well, 13 sets of tennis on the way to the final. He only completed two matches. It's just unbelievable, just bizarre. I can't really remember who he beat in that tournament, to be honest. Was that the well, year so, Nishikori beat, beat Murray in the quarters the and then lost to him? Um, he beat Carl Edmund in the fourth round um, oh. and Gail Monfils in the semi-final and then lost oh, yeah, to Monfils in the semi-final mm. I mean, that's... Slight, slightly off topic but on, on that sort of run I was told as you guys know I was in Greece uh, until last week I was told today that one of the finalists last week in Greece because it rained it's still going on at the minute but this is his run to the final um, and he was a wild card by the way his run was he played a junior exempt in the first round beat him. He got a walkover in the second round. He then played another junior exempt in the quarterfinals, won that, and then in the semifinals today, he got another walkover. (laughs) (laughs) He hasn't beaten an adult. No, and he was a a wild card himself as well. (laughs) It's not Petros, Uh, is it? Because that might explain it. It's it's not, (laughs) but um, yeah, I've never seen a run like it. Phenomenal stuff. Uh, remarkable. Um, let's move on to just our final talking point, um, which is a bit more serious, so I, I kind of hesitate to lean into it from a moment of comedy. But um, obviously, we've been talking a lot about these uh, these allegations against Alexander Zverev, um, which, again, if you haven't read the piece by um, Ben Rothenberg in Racket Magazine from Olya Sharapova. I can't, I can't get it. Sharapova. 
Sharipova. I keep trying to call her Sharapova, but um, Olya uh, Sharipova, his ex-girlfriend, um, some serious allegations of domestic abuse, and they are allegations at this stage, but it was spoken about a lot of the ATP finals. Of course, um, Djokovic kind of grabbing the headlines um, for a number of different things. He was asked about, well, for his, his very, we should say, first start was asked about it, and sort of interestingly asked whether any of the locker room chat around him or towards him had changed. I mean, I don't imagine there is any locker room chat at the moment because you're pretty severely isolated, but he sort of laughed it off, which wasn't a great look. But, you know, we, we kind of know how Alexander is going to deal with this from now on in, and I think we're going to expect that kind of behaviour, and we've talked about it enough before. Um, but Djokovic kind of coming out and, first of all, saying, we don't know what's going to happen, or we don't know what happened, or we do know, or we're going to find out, but of course we might not. Um, but then also, and I think this is the interesting talk, he, he certainly didn't you know, deny the idea that there might one day be a domestic abuse policy in tennis. Now, anyone who follows the NFL or the NBA will know that there are in existence these clauses which basically say if you are accused or charged with certain things, um, substance abuse, domestic abuse, um, a certain number of felonies or crimes, I don't understand the American legal system well enough, he was kind of immediately suspended on full pay um, pending an investigation. Um, and that essentially exists because they've got what they call a collectively bargained contract system where the players as a group um, negotiate a contract with the league and then the teams uh, buy those contracts from the league. So there's actually not much of a, too much of a contractual relationship between the franchises and the players. I mean, obviously there is, but it's less so. Um, and that kind of collective agreement applies to everyone. Now, Djokovic, obviously self-appointed lord of the manor of um, the new players in the room, it kind of didn't, didn't dismiss that idea, which to me at least would give the players' union a reason to exist. And much as I don't, want, don't like the way it was set up, if they were to able, be able to establish some policies like that, that encouraged good player behaviour. When I say good player behaviour, I mean not beating up anybody. Um, <laughs> then that would probably be quite a good thing. Yeah, uh, I, I think I, I, I'm not aware that is one of his policies <laughs> at the minute that they're going to be running on. But um, but he did, but he didn't he didn't say no. He was asked about it and he said, well, maybe that no. is something we could have in the future. Yeah, he did. He did. I mean, it is an interesting comparison with. Like the American sports, for one thing, obviously that's just based in one country, and the other one is like mainly that tennis are kind of individual contractors, which is often that's where the union stuff with tennis players becomes so difficult as well, and why they yeah. they can't actually properly unionize. Um, look, it, it, it's something that should be there. I don't think it needs players to be putting this in themselves. The ATP should do it on account of you know they've got. Um, in their rules about bringing the game into disrepute, it just needs to be spelled out in there that there should be an independent uh, investigation on it. But um, they don't actually have any investigators. Is one thing I know. The, I'm, I'm definitely not out here making excuses for them. I'm, I'm just saying some facts to come with it. But you know, revenue has obviously been cut pretty massively as an organisation this year. Um, and again, this kind of leans itself to the point about tennis being so. Um, fractioned in many ways fractured sorry um, mm. you know you've got this tennis integrity unit that has a load of ex-police coppers kind of working for it but they're only 
doing match fixing you don't have one body that kind of regulates everything and i think that that's where a lot of people have like called for like an independent commissioner of tennis to kind of have this separate kind of overarching power and i, I wonder if that is the sort of department where you would put this sort of thing in 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 both tours and have like a proper kind of standards of conduct the the other thing to say compared to the nfl um and nba stuff is i think they've got rules about if you are um found guilty in their investigations process which i I think the important thing to say about this as well though is that it's held they say it's held to a higher standard than a court of law so the higher standard that's what they kind of say because it's kind of like about your behavior sort of thing so it's, it's not they say even if you're found not guilty in court, you can still be found guilty in their kind of oh, I see. investigation. I see. You, you see what I mean? So when they, you said they, standard, I thought you meant standard of proof. But actually, no, no, no. I mean, like, I mean standard. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Sorry. I, yeah. I, yes. Um, I yeah. Sorry. I, I, I did phrase that probably the wrong way around. <laughs> to be fair. Um, but it, but if you're found guilty in their court and in inverted commas, mm. you are automatically banned for six games, I think it is, for the first incident, and then banned for life for a second one. Yeah. That that would be more difficult to introduce in tennis, like how long a ban is, for example. You know, yeah. banning as independent contractors, you're opening yourself up to quite a big lawsuit to be like, well, you're stopping them making money for something that's not been proven in... Yeah, and, and you've not, it's not been proven in court. So, mm. you know, that's where that would be a real issue there. But... It, it, it's something that needs to happen. There needs to be some sort of investigation. And as I say, there's already that umbrella of kind of bringing the game into disrepute. I think it just needs to be explicitly written in there. But tennis as a whole needs a better process, not just the ATP. And as I've said before, um, when we discussed this last week, and I don't know if I said it like this, but Alexander Zverev was asked, you know, what steps will you take to clear your name? Yeah. Um, and he said, well, what more can I do? I can't, you know, I've, I've said my piece, I've said, you know, I've denied these, these claims. What more can I do? Well, I'm sorry, Alexander, but there literally is a process that you can go through known as suing someone for libel because they have defamed you, which is exactly what more you can do. There is a hell of a lot more that you can do if you want to clear your name. And um, I'm not allowed to say why he might not do that. But all I can say to anyone listening and trying to consider an opinion about this is that he can do more to clear his name here uh, and the, the thing for he for him is and he's going to realize this very quickly is this isn't going away like this no. is something that's going to keep being asked about and that the fact there's no legal proceedings makes it in many ways a more difficult problem for him from that side of things yeah because, because it means we can keep talking about it yeah so you know he, he can't turn around and say oh i'm worried about like interfering with legal proceedings or whatever or like you know i'm not actually allowed to talk about this he he will keep being asked about it and by association roger federer is going to be asked about this that's going to be the next step is a teammate going to stick with him because as soon as they do i tell you in australia if roger's there this question is going very early on to him and it's mm. going to be a very difficult conversation because it that's i think and by a difficult conversation i mean i mean between federer and zverev because Federer's whole brand is about basically being godlike, you know, quiet. Not quiet, sorry. You know, no problems. And as soon as that starts coming in and is linked to Federer, he's going to 
be very much on the back foot. He's going to be uncomfortable because he mm. doesn't want to break that. Um, and it is not something he can't talk about. You know, if he turns mm. around and says, I'm not going to talk about that, he'll get a load of a load of stick from people being like, well, you can't just brush domestic abuse stuff under the carpet. You have to address this. You're one of the most well-known sports stars in the world. You can't mm. just say no. Um, and if he says, well, this is really, really wrong and we have to believe all women, he's like, well, why are you still representing this guy? Mm. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a really tough position now. for, and, and I mean tough in the very loose sense of obviously nothing compared to anything that's actually going on between the um, Sharipov here. But, you know, it, it is certainly quite interesting where this will go. I think it's not going away. And Zverev has, I mentioned the Adidas contract the other week, you know, there's could be quite an interesting off season for Zverev in terms of contractual stuff. Mm. Is his Adidas contract running out, is it? Yeah. It is, right. Interesting. <laughs> it's what they call very bad timing. Um, <laughs> Yeah. yeah, probably quite good timing for Adidas. <laughs> yeah. But 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 they're a massive German sportswear, so it's not. It, I'm yeah. not saying that will necessarily happen. It is just it is interesting timing. Is mm. all I'm going to say. We wait more, um, as you say, George. I think it's not the not the first time we've talked about it. It's certainly not the last time um, we're going to talk about it. Um, we will talk about it more probably next week because I'm sure more news lines will emerge. But. Um, what we will be trying to do next week is go through our end-of-season awards um, and uh, we'll maybe have a little bit of Twitter participation during the week. I'm sure, George, you love those polls, don't you? I do, I do love it. And I was just going to say, it hopefully we'll be a bit clearer on the Australian Open situation, which we haven't really had time to touch on because that's long and complicated in itself. But yes. basically that is a complete mess as well at the moment. But they are saying <laughs> we're going to find out in the next year. And I, I, I spoke a bit about it last week, why it's a mess, but it became messier beyond that. Um, but hopefully, I, I think we'll spend a bit of time on that next week as well because we, we should have a bit more clarity about what's happening. But let's just say it's a bit of a mess at the moment. It's always good when someone an hour into the podcast goes, well, there's this thing and it's a total mess. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't want to take up another hour going into it. You know what I'm like. (laughs) Get a bit Uh, carried away. Uh, George Cohen, thank you for your company. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Make sure you follow us on Twitter at Love Tennis Pod um, and make sure that you give us a review or a rating wherever you're listening. Um, And if you want to listen live, um, you can download the Locker Room app um, and you can listen to us live. You can even contribute. We can invite you to speak on the podcast, um, and you can uh, be involved as well. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay indoors if you're supposed to. Thank you, lads. Bye bye. Sports Social Podcast Network. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry. Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah. Oh. Sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.